This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. What do you do when you leave everything for a miracle worker? And then he says something shocking and scary, like, say, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. What do you do? Do you confront him? Do you get him to make some sense out of it? Or do you just walk away? That's what we're going to look at in this week's podcast, a follow-up to last week's podcast. And last week, I read excerpts from John 6. I'm going to read every verse from John 6.60 to John 6.71, closing out the sixth chapter of John, I believe. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was who should betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. So his first listeners didn't like it when... Quote, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Jesus then says to them, My words are spirit and life, and the flesh is of no avail. But he doesn't back down from his teaching, and they aren't consoled by those words. They don't stay because he says, my words are spirit and life and the flesh is of no avail. So oftentimes, people who want to disbelieve this passage say that he says, my words are spirit and life, and that just means he's speaking symbolically, or the flesh is of no avail, and that means he doesn't really mean his flesh and blood will do anything to save you. But nowhere does Jesus use spirit to mean symbol, quite the opposite. He says his words have a profoundly true meaning when he says they are spirit and life. And when he says the flesh is of no avail, he doesn't mean his flesh is of no avail. If that's what he meant, then the Eucharist would indeed be worthless, but then the incarnation, God becoming flesh, would avail nothing too. And so would his death on a cross, and so would his resurrection. What is actually going on here is akin to what St. John Paul II says in his Theology of the Body. 
He says that the union of man and woman in love and truth is an image of Trinitarian love. Unions of men and women that are not in love and truth are not images of the Trinitarian love. The same with the Eucharist. The Eucharist isn't magic. It only has its effect if it is received in truth and love, well, in spirit and life. In fact, as we will see, that is what St. Paul said not long after this. As Augustine put it, quote, The flesh profits nothing, but he is talking here about the flesh that is alone by itself. Let spirit be added to flesh, and it profits very much. For if flesh profited nothing, the word would not have become flesh to dwell among us, end quote. You may be aware of the fact that there's a crisis of belief in the Blessed Sacrament in the Catholic Church. A few years ago, a survey found that 31%, less than one in three Catholics, believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. I was actually surprised that 31% believed. I had never even heard of the real presence growing up in my parish, and I dare say many others haven't either. When I told my brother about it in college, he thought I was making it up, like I had when I heard about it. He thought I had wandered into some extremist Catholic cult. But the church really does profess that the bread is gone and Jesus is there when we receive communion. The Catechism says, quote, By the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. That teaching is shocking. After consecration, the host at Mass is not bread. It is Jesus Christ himself. He just looks like bread. Really? Yes, really. But it isn't as gross as it sounds, as the apostles soon learned what Jesus meant. As St. Paul explained in 1 Corinthians, written around the year 54, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul went on to reference strict rules guarding the real presence. Quote, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. End quote. Nonetheless, the Eucharist united the first Christians. What did the first Christians do? They celebrated the Eucharist according to Acts. Quotes, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. End quote. The invaluable early church Christian teaching book from the 100s, the Didache, guards the Eucharist and calls it a sacrifice and says, quote, Let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist unless they have been baptized. And every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. It adds, quote, We do not receive these things as common bread or common drink, but as Jesus Christ, our Savior, being incarnate by God's word, took flesh and blood for our salvation, so also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation, is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus, end quote. 
The world understood what Christians believed, and they were shocked, sometimes even accusing the Christians of cannibalism. But throughout the years, the real presence has been an important part of Christian spirituality. St. John Chrysostom, who lived in the 300s, said, quote, You say, I should like to see his face, his garments, his shoes. You do see him. You touch him. You eat him. He gives himself to you to be your food and nourishment, end quote. St. Augustine, who lived in the 300s and early 400s, said, quote, Christ held himself in his hands when he gave us his body, saying, this is my body, end quote. St. Francis of Assisi, who lived in the 1100s and early 1200s, said, quote, What sublime humility that the Lord of the universe, the divine Son of God, should stoop as to hide himself under the appearance of bread for our salvation, end quote. The Lord of the Rings author, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, wrote to his son, quote, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves on earth, and more than that. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, St. Teresa of Calcutta, in the 20th century, said, quote, When you look at the crucifix, you understand how much God loved you. When you look at the sacred host, you understand how much Jesus loves you right now. End quote. To this day, most Christians worldwide belong to a faith that holds that Jesus is really present in the Eucharist. There are a little more than two billion Christians in the world. Half of those, about one billion, are Catholics. Of those, only 7% are in the United States. Another 12% of the world's Christians are Orthodox Christians who also believe in the real presence. That means more than three out of every five Christians belongs to a church that believes in the real presence. And it's no wonder. When Jesus says we are saved by his blood, he doesn't mean that we are, quotes, saved by his, quotes, blood. He means his real blood really gives us eternal life. Where do we find it? in the Eucharist. When I first heard that the Eucharist at Mass is not bread anymore, but really Jesus, truly present, I didn't understand what I was hearing. This was in college. I said, you mean you believe the bread recalls Jesus at his Last Supper, right? No, they said. They didn't believe that there was any bread there at all after the consecration. There was only Jesus. He just looked like bread. Once I understood what they were saying, I thought they were crazy. In all my years attending the Catholic Church, I had never been taught anything of the kind, and it didn't make any sense. Why would God want to take on the appearance of bread? Why would he want to be eaten? Actually, Bob Dylan helped me understand. After losing my faith in high school, I only became open to Christianity again because of Bob Dylan. I had bought all of his albums and loved them all, even the Christian ones. And the title song from his album, Saved, Dylan concisely summed up Protestant beliefs this way. I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone cold dead as I stepped out of the womb. By his grace I have been touched, by his word I have been healed, by his hand I have been delivered, by his spirit I have been sealed, I have been saved, by the blood of the Lamb. Then he repeats it over and over again, saved, by the blood of the Lamb. I bought what he said to a point. I saw how Dylan could be born already ruined, 
We are all connected by blood to Adam, so his decision to align himself with sin defined me just as much as one grandfather's move from Kansas to Arizona and the other grandfather's move from Spain to El Salvador to Mexico affected me. Jesus wanted to connect us to the blood of a new family, his family, as adopted sons. But how could Jesus' blood get from Palestine two millennia ago to save Bob Dylan or me today? It does so spiritually, the Protestants believe, but I couldn't believe in that. God did things in a much more natural way than that in every other instance I knew of. If God wanted the blood of Jesus to reverse what I had inherited from the blood of Adam, I thought, that blood had to actually reach me. And that's when I got it. Jesus said, quote, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in you. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. End quote. That was it. You were saved by the blood of Jesus, not in some spiritual way, not by blood of Jesus that was shed years ago and disappeared into the soil of Jerusalem. You are saved by the blood of Jesus, which is present and available to you now in the Eucharist. Even Bob Dylan seemed to acknowledge it later in his career when, after leaving his Christian sect, he sang, I could never learn to drink that blood and call it wine. Then, the Eucharist made all of Scripture make a new kind of sense to me. Melchizedek's offering of bread and wine, the manna in the desert, the grain offering, the Passover lamb. Then, the Eucharist made sense of why Jesus was so obsessed with wheat, why Jesus focused on wheat so often, why he was called the Lamb of God, why he told the parable of the sower, the multiplication of the loaves, and more that we'll see. And the Eucharist made one biblical story make sense for me for the first time, the Supper at Emmaus, which we'll look at in more detail when we talk about the resurrection. In that story, Jesus meets two of his disciples after his death. They don't recognize him until he breaks bread, and then he disappears. That never sounded real to me. Again, I don't like spiritualizing Jesus. He did earthy miracles with water and spit and mud. He didn't do magician's tricks like vanishing into thin air. But I was willing to admit that he would do something odd like that if he was trying to communicate something earthy, something hard to understand. But what was he trying to communicate? The doctrine of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist makes his message clear. I am no longer with you in this form, his body, now you see him, but in this form, the bread, now you don't. And so I believed in that too, and I still do. In this, I am much like Peter. I believe in Jesus, and so when hard things like this come up, I give his teaching some respect. In this case, when Jesus asks, will you leave also, Peter does what he does best. He says what needs to be said. Jesus would later tell Peter that Satan will sift the apostles like wheat and that Peter must strengthen their faith. Strengthening others' faith seems to be Peter's special charism. At the miraculous catch of fish, it's Peter who says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, acknowledging Christ's holiness. At Capernaum, as we will see, he says who Jesus is. Now he says, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. That's the best he can do, and it's good enough. 
He can't affirm that it is somehow okay to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood. That still makes no sense to him. But he can say that Jesus is the only force on earth and in heaven that he trusts. And so where else can I go is the best he can do. And that's the best I can do often when I don't understand a teaching or when I don't understand what Jesus is asking me to do. I just say, I don't know what you're saying, but I believe in you. But still, following Jesus can be embarrassing. Jesus asks us to believe things that don't ring true and to keep following him when his teaching loses its charm and suddenly sounds bizarre and out of step with contemporary society. We experience this all the time. For instance, the church teaches that four sins cry out to heaven for vengeance. Two are the blood of Abel, in other words, family killing, including abortion, and the sin of the sodomites, in other words, non-procreative sex, homosexual sex. Conservatives will be on board with one or both of these, but many people will just be embarrassed that that the church teaches that those sins cry out to heaven in a special way. The two other sins that cry out to heaven are the cry of the oppressed, in other words, failure to help refugees, widows and orphans, and injustice to the wage earner, so exploitation of labor and extreme forms of capitalism. So liberals will be on board with one or both of those, but a lot of conservatives will think, well, that's embarrassing. Why is he saying that those are so important? Many of us respond like the many disciples who say, this saying is hard, who can accept it? Jesus has told them that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood or they will have no life in him, and the image disgusts them. Jesus doesn't soften his message. Instead, he does something far more merciful. He shows them how they can find their way to faith. Does this shock you, he asks? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? We all have the same stark choice to make. Turning to Jesus Christ means turning our back on the gods we served before. You cannot follow Jesus Christ and pursue wealth as an end in itself. You cannot follow Jesus Christ and keep your own personal sexual morality. You cannot follow Jesus Christ and live a comfortable life, maximizing your pleasure of any kind. You cannot follow Jesus Christ only when his teachings match your political preferences. Jesus wants your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, and your whole strength. We know the alternative, slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil. The church asks of us to commit to doctrines we don't understand, to reject contraception and consumerism, to oppose divorce and division, to put the poor first and ourselves last. A lot of it makes no sense to me, but where else can I go? We have met Jesus Christ and know that he is our origin and our end, the one who sustains us and sends us. His demand may be easy or difficult, consoling or embarrassing, but we need to say, no matter what, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Once we do make that decision, though, we receive something phenomenal. We receive his flesh and his blood. In other words, we join a new family, or as St. Paul puts it, we put off our old self and put on a new self. When we receive communion in the church, we return to our pews, and the last thing we hear is the priest sending us forth out into the world. It's very clear what we're being told. Take and eat and go out into the world. 
So think about it for a second. How is Jesus present to us in the Mass? He's a host. He looks like a piece of bread. If you were to take that piece of bread outside, under the sidewalk, outside the church, and set it there, what would happen? Nothing. People would overlook it, step on it. Jesus would have no power in that host. He chose instead to place the host in each of us so that the message will be clear. I can't get out of here without you. I need your arms. I need your legs. I need your voice. I need you to be my body in the world. You know, it'd be really obvious if we got to the front of the communion line and the priest handed us a hammer and nails. It would be clear that he was saying, go and build. Or what if we went up and we bowed and he handed us a sword? And then at the end of Mass, they said, go forth. We would be very clear we were supposed to go fight. He doesn't. He hands us his very self, his flesh and blood, to become part of our flesh and blood. And then says, go, serve. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. If that sounds abstract or esoteric, the saints remind us just how real it is. As blessed Claude Colombier puts it, I began to amend my life by frequenting Holy Communion after having tried every other way and failed. When I went rarely to Holy Communion, I had no end of bad habits and imperfections, which appeared to me insurmountable. I uprooted these by multiplying my communions. Every time I omitted frequent communion, I felt my weakness more. When I received communion again, I felt fervor rekindle in my heart. End quote. The effect of the Eucharist isn't automatic, though. It isn't a vaccine. It's a relationship. Columbiere continued, If I found that when going frequently to communion, I became no better, was still just as weak, just as prone to evil, just as indifferent about sin, I should conclude not that I ought to leave off going, but that I ought to receive our Lord with better dispositions, I should see if my confessions were wanting in sincerity, contrition, or purpose of amendment. If you are sinful, repent so that you can receive communion often. If you are imperfect, go often to communion that you may amend your faults." End quote. We've seen it again and again. We don't always know what Jesus is up to. We don't know always where he's leading us. We don't always know what he's going to ask of us. We don't always know what he's going to surprise us with next, but we know that if we follow behind him closely, we can insert our ordinary lives into his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.